Well, good morning, church. Today is the second Sunday in Lent. How's everybody doing with Lent? Yes, everybody's doing good. I'm glad to hear that. I don't know if you've given up anything for Lent, but I have. I've given up stuff for Lent, and it's been really hard for me. I've given up all grains and anything with a sweet flavor, basically anything that tastes good. I've given that up. (laughs) And I did that because I'm really good at working my way around whatever I've given up. Like, if I give up sweets and chocolate, then I just make up for it by eating a lot of salty snacks. Does that make sense? Um, I'll just, I'll, if I give up wheat, then I'm just going to eat a ton of potato chips through Lent. And, um, and that doesn't seem to make, that's not in the spirit of fasting and Lent. My son, Gray, for health reasons, has to be on a gluten-free diet. And I wanted to join him for the season of Lent. Because I know, because being gluten-free can be really difficult. Uh, I know some of you know that firsthand. And so I wanted to join him and stand in solidarity with him. But I knew that if I only gave up wheat, then I'd eat tons of French fries and tons of chips. And, uh, and, and that would make up for it, making my fast not hurt so bad. So anyway, this year I gave up all that stuff. And I can tell you that denying myself anything sweet and all the grains has really had an impact on me. I find myself constantly being reminded of the cross through this. Because every time I want to eat something that I've given up, my body cries out against me and says, why have you done this? And I say, ah, because I'm trying to remind myself of the cross. This is for a reason. That's why we give up stuff for Lent, to be reminded how easily our desires and our wants and our appetites and our passions can control us. To be reminded that we cannot be good enough on our own. Just trying to give up chocolate for Lent will tell you that you can't save yourself. We can't, by trying really hard, earn our way to salvation. We cannot, on our own, on our own save ourselves. But it's also, we also do it to allow each moment of temptation throughout Lent, each moment of wanting what we gave up, to be an occasion of prayer. Every time I want a chip or sweet tea or a Cracker Barrel biscuit, which would be amazing. Oh, Raise your hand if you like Cracker Barrel biscuits. If you're from the north and you don't have a Cracker Barrel, you need to go to Cracker Barrel before you go back home and have a biscuit, because those are so good. But every time I think about that, I'm drawn back to the cross of Christ. I think of my Savior. I think of Jesus, his 40 days in in the wilderness, his suffering and his death, and I pray. That's why we deny ourselves all that stuff in Lent, to be constantly reminded of Jesus and his cross. Now today, we hear some really harsh words from our Lord, hard words about what it means to be his follower, about what it means to truly have life. And this is one of those teachings of Jesus that actually shows up in each of the four Gospels. That means that each Gospel writer thought that this was a teaching so central to Jesus' message that they wanted to record it and make sure that we heard it and that we got it and that it sinks in. Jesus says that the only way to truly have life is to lose yourself for his sake. So I want you to look at this with me. This is Mark chapter 8. So if you've got your Bibles, turn there. If you don't, then you can look at the bottom of page 5 in your bulletin. We're going to start at verse 34. It says, And Jesus called to him the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If any man would come after me, if any man would be my follower, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Indeed, for what can a man give in return for his life? This moment, this teaching happens right in the middle of Mark's gospel. From, from this point on, we are walking with Jesus to the cross. Uh, and up to this point, we, he's been doing all of his teaching and his healing. And we've all been waiting as readers of the gospel for the people in the gospel to realize just who this man Jesus is. And then finally, we come to that moment when someone gets it. You remember right before this episode, Jesus has taken his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, and he's asked them there, who do the people say that I am? And his disciples answer, well, they basically are saying that you're one of the prophets. That was their answer. And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter has his moment. Suddenly, the penny dropped for him, and everything fell into place, and he could see it. He was like, wait, you can't be just a prophet. All the other prophets talk about the way of life, but you say, I am the way and the truth and the life. All the other prophets talk about a future resurrection, but you point to yourself and say, I am the resurrection and the life. All the other prophets say, thus saith the Lord, but you always say, I say to you. All the other prophets always point us to God, but Jesus, this whole time, you've been pointing us to yourself. You're no mere prophet. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Peter and all the rest to suddenly see it, to suddenly have it all make sense? Has the day that we've been longing for finally come? Is God really on the move? Can it really be happening? You're no prophet. You're the son. To grow up Jewish, like his disciples had, was to grow up in a world that was dominated by the powerful. If it wasn't the Romans, then it was the Assyrians, or it was somebody else bigger and more powerful than the Jewish people. And so like my kids are growing up with stories about Superman and Luke Skywalker that just capture their imaginations and they just play those games all day long. The children back then, they grew up hearing the prophecies about one who would come. Like the prophecy in Daniel 7 that talks about one like a son of man who would come in glory with armies of angels to set the world right. Listen to this from Daniel 7. This is what Peter has in his mind when he says that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son. He says, this is Daniel 7, it says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is like Superman, except even better because it's real. And Peter is looking at Jesus and says, that's you. You're the one, the son who will make everything right. But then Jesus does something that Peter couldn't have imagined. I mean, for him, it just comes out of left field because nobody had put these two things together before. Jesus puts together the Son of Man from Daniel 7 together with another man in the Old Testament. And nobody else had done this because they couldn't imagine how these two people could be the same person. But he says, yes, I am the Son of Man that you have been waiting for. But the Son of Man is also the suffering servant. I am the Son of Man that you've been waiting for, but the Son of Man is also the suffering servant of Isaiah. 
Nobody had done this. These two people seem so different. One is coming on the clouds in glory with an everlasting kingdom, and the other is crushed and abused and rejected. But Jesus put them together and he says that they are one and the same person because the suffering servant was also a figure in the Old Testament who would save his people and put everything right, but he would do it through his own suffering. Right after Peter realized that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus told them what being the Messiah would mean. It meant that he was going to undergo great suffering and be rejected by the people and be killed. And after three days, he would rise again. And of course, that made no sense to Peter. That made no sense to anybody else because that's not what Daniel 7 looks like. And so you know the story. Peter rebuked Jesus. But Jesus rebuked Peter right back because, Jesus, because Peter was looking at it from a human point of view. Human messiahs don't die. Supermen don't die. Just watch the movies, folks. They don't die. And so Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. It's the harshest rebuke to ever come from the mouth of Jesus. It's the harshest one. Get behind me, Satan. Nothing is worse than that. Peter was doing exactly what Satan was doing, had done to Jesus in the wilderness. Satan had said, take the easy way out. Use your power. There's no need to suffer like this, Jesus. Except that there was. There was a reason to suffer like that. Because suffering, as we see, as we will see, is the only way to truly have life. Jesus said in verse 34, if anyone wants to become my follower, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Some of you were here a few weeks ago when I said that I wished every Christian, every Christian wore a collar like this or another kind of collar that was round that basically told the world, I'm a Christian. I said this because it acts as a reminder to me whenever I wear it that it reminds me who I am and whose I am. And it also acts as a sign to everyone around me that I'm a Christian, that I'm a follower of Jesus. And I do wish that every Christian wore one of these because then it would be so easy uh, it wouldn't be so easy for us to make the mistake of thinking that there are two levels to the Christian life. So many people think this, that there are two levels, two ways of being a Christian. Some people are super Christians. Some people really get into it, and, and they're really going for it. These are the ones uh, who are they're the truly devoted ones. They bring their Bibles everywhere. They talk about Jesus all the time. They give a full 10% each month. And it's like their whole life is about Jesus. And then there's that second-tier Christian. And they come to church most of the time. They pray when it gets hard. They give a little bit here and there. But it's just part of their life. You know, I, I play golf. I, I go fishing. I'm a businessman. Yeah, and I'm a Christian. I mean, it's, that's just part of who I am. But Jesus says that what I just described can't be possible. There can't be two levels of Christian devotion. It's all or nothing with Jesus. Look at what he says. He says, if anyone wants to become my follower, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If anyone wants to become my follower. He wasn't just talking to his disciples. Then it says in our gospel that he turned to the multitudes and told them this. If anyone wants to become my follower. There's not a super Christian category over here and a regular Christian category over here. 
And, uh, you know, I'm a Christian when I need to be category way in the back. There's just one category, one standard, and it's this. If anyone wants to become my follower, let him take up his cross, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the standard. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, then you have to be all in. You have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross and you have to follow him. Let me just briefly touch on what denying yourself and taking up your cross entails. Because this is easy to misunderstand. It's easy to over-spiritualize. When Jesus says that you have to deny yourself, he's not talking about denying yourself things like deny yourself chocolate or pleasures or anything like that. He's talking about denying yourself. Yourself. And what that means is something like this. In our reading that we just heard from Genesis this morning, it's that story about um, how God had been telling Abram and Sarai over and over and over the years that Abram and, and, and she were going to be the mother and father of a multitude. A huge nation was going to come from them. Uh, but at this point, they've been hearing this for a long time. They're about 99 years old, and they're like, hey, hello, God. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but the years are kind of moving on, and nothing's happened. And maybe you could have used us years ago, but now that we're 99, look at us. His promise was getting harder and harder to believe. And so Sarai and Abraham, Abram decided to help God. And Sarai gave her maid Hagar to Abram to have a son. So God's promise could be fulfilled. And why did they do that? It was because Abram and Sarai looked at themselves and they said, we're too old. God can't use us now. He waited too long. I mean, maybe when we were younger, but not now. Look at us. They knew who they were. They were a barren couple. They had been their whole lives. That was who they were. And that's what they believed about themselves. But what happened next? In our reading, we hear that God changed their names. He said, all that stuff that you believe about yourself and that you have believed about yourself up till now, look, I'm going to change your name, which, is, which basically means whenever somebody gets their name changed, they're getting their whole selves changed. I'm going to change your name. Now let me show you who you really are when you stop looking at yourself and trust in me. That's what it means to deny yourself. Denying yourself means letting God be God. It means stop looking at yourself and deciding who you are and what's possible and let God tell you who you are and what's possible. Back in the Middle Ages, they had this idea that denying yourself meant mortification of the flesh. And so you've seen movies or maybe Monty Python where they're, they're uh, flagellating themselves, bring out your dead, and they're just all this kind of stuff. You know what I'm talking about? You've seen this? Nobody's seen this? Fantastic. <laughs> Whatever. Anyway, I'm not recommending the movie. I'm not recommending you see this. But you've, you've, you've probably heard that back then, monks would, would, um, would whip themselves and try to uh, mortify the flesh. But denying yourself is not about mortifying the flesh. It's not, about, it's not some medieval notion of self-flagellation. It's not self-loathing. It's not self-hate. It's self-forgetfulness. That's what it is. It's self-forgetfulness. It's saying, I want to let God tell me who I am and why I'm here. I believe you, and I trust you, and I place my life in your hands, God. That's denying yourself. Jesus says you have to deny yourself, and he, and he couples that with take up your cross and follow me. And we can't spiritualize this. I mean, it would be easy to, but we shouldn't because when they heard Jesus take up your, say, take up your cross, all they heard was cross. 
and it was the most brutal, humiliating death any of them could imagine. If you want to follow me, then take up your cross. Now, that's not a very good recruitment strategy. Nobody ever wants to be lifted up on a cross because a cross means only one thing. It means death. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, then it will cost you your life. He wants nothing less than that from you. Take up your cross. That's to say, my life, my will for my life, my plan, my way, none of that. Only your will, your plan, and your way, God. Because if it were up to us, none of us would choose the cross. We don't want to be lifted up on a cross. Lift me up to the penthouse. That's all right. Lift me up to positions of authority. I'll take that. Lift me up and make me rich and powerful. But don't lift me up on a cross. But that's what it takes to follow Jesus. Jesus wants followers who will follow him all the way, even if it means turning away from everything the world says is important, even if it means dying. But people, why would we do this? Why would you want to do this? Why, when it costs so much, why would you still choose to follow him? If he's not promising riches or a smooth and a happy life or a life free of troubles, why would you willingly, voluntarily choose the way of the cross? Because it's the way of life. And there's nothing better than being with Jesus. No matter what, there's nothing better than being with him. Sometimes I imagine what what it must have been like to be one of those two criminals who were crucified with Jesus that day as the Lord himself was there. And then to think that he was there on a cross with me. That's who we are. That's what we're invited to do. I mean, what an honor to have shared that moment with Jesus. May we all be so honored as we take up our cross. In Jesus' name. Amen.